Socks on 35th is next. Doors open on the left. How's it going, everybody? My name is Duke Coughlin, and welcome to the Socks on 35th podcast. We are back with another exciting episode covering your Chicago White Sox. As always, I'm joined by our panelists, Jordan Lazowski and Nick Gower. We are getting closer to spring training. It is still cold as all hell in the Midwest, but I guess 39 degrees is warming up in, in our definition of the term. So, gentlemen, how are we doing? I'm at this point of the offseason where it's time to get to spring training. This is like the worst two or three week period here coming towards the end of football season. There's just a huge lull right now. I know there's a lot to still be done in free agency that hasn't been done. But still, I feel like nothing's happening. I'm bored. It's time to get some real good things to come out of, hopefully come out of spring training, rather. But until then, it's just trying to get there at this point. On the bright side, there's so little activity right now that I'm not even really, like, I'm in tune. This is that I'm reading the rumors and whatnot. But there are even so few legitimate rumors that I'm not thinking about it that much. Like the Twins just traded Jorge Polanco to the Mariners. Like that's a fairly big move, but like that shouldn't be the biggest move made in the last month yet. It, it might be. So just a weird point. But as Duke was saying, 39 degrees actually feels nice to me. I just wanted like an hour walk after work and that was nice. But still hoping for spring training to get here soon. And hopefully people have signed by that. And my fear now is that it's going to be like mid-March and you still have like a dozen actual good free agents sitting around. You got to give the national guys credit keeping them or trying to keep themselves relevant with just dropping baseless rumors that have said the same thing for weeks upon weeks upon weeks upon weeks now at this point guys haven't signed it's coming close and a lot of them are scott boris guys and nothing's happening i mean you got to give credit to the source bros too on twitter they discuss that a three-team trade is imminent like every other day surrounded around dylan Cease. it kind of feels like ever since like the harper free agency cycle with how long it took him to sign his original contract with the Phillies, that Major League free agency really does kind of go deeper into spring training than it used to in the past. So I think that's something to kind of keep in mind. But I mean, until then, we have nothing but Romy Gonzalez being designated for assignment. That's about where we're at. But great to hear, gentlemen. We have quite a bit to cover in this episode. But before we get started, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the website, SoxOn35th.com, as well as following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at SoxOn35th. Throughout the offseason, we're just kind of in this lull before spring training, before seeing what the roster is going to start shaping up to be, because there's just so many question marks. I did notice that Max Stasi was at the uh, season ticket holder little event that uh, the White Sox had recently, which I thought was interesting. I saw that event and I wasn't able to go. I wanted to, but I couldn't. I saw that event and I saw some of those pictures that came from both it and the day before when they went to some youth camp somewhere and volunteered there. And I look around, I'm like, the only person I recognize is Nick Nestrini. And it's just because we had him on the podcast. Who are the rest of you guys? I was like, oh, I'm like, we aren't here again. And it's it's sad, but it's funny at the same time. Like, I'm sure Max Sassy was there. I couldn't have told you that, but I'm sure he was, Duke. He was on the stage sitting in one of those like bar chairs that like are like awkward to try to like look normal and sitting in any way. But when you're on a propelled stage, it's even worse. 
Um, but I, I thought that was interesting. You know, obviously Andrew Benatendi is just like the white sock of the year for just making it to all these offseason events. I mean, I could pick him out in a 100K stadium just because that's my boy. But yeah, I mean, people were ripping into him pretty pretty good on Twitter about the the new faces that were at that charity event. But you know, obviously, I give credit to him for doing the charity event. You know, going and hanging out with kids. You know, it's it's always super cool. I used to always joke about the uh, the NFL cares commercials when I was when I was in elementary school because. You know, the teacher would come out and be like, yeah, we got a surprise this week. And it's like, oh, no, Joey Harrington is coming to our school. You know what I mean? So it's it, regardless, it's still cool, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, with that, I think that kind of just highlights how really uneventful the offseason's been as far as like free agency signings. You know, Martin Maldonado, that was a, a big one. Apparently, we we're just going to have eight catchers on the active roster this year. We've gone from first baseman to catcher. So this, this is where the White Sox are in the developmental system. Obviously, this is why Chris Getz and Rick Hahn didn't see eye to eye because Han was a first base guy. Chris Getz, obviously, catcher guy. Um, are, there, are there any of these guys that really tickle your fancy, I guess, would be the best way I could put it? Here's my thing on at least one of these moves. And it's the Bryce. It's such a minor one. The Bryce Collins minor league signing. This is a guy who had, for those who might know, gone to Tread Athletics. It's basically another version of Driveline. Same exact concept. And then it feels like they just started publishing stuff on him. And then a few days later, it was announced the White Sox signed him. That's the most promising thing that the White Sox have done this offseason is potentially see something from a driveline type, a tread athletic type organization and say, oh, this is pretty good stuff. We can work with that. Going back and spending five and a half, six million dollars on John Brebbia, doing the same thing with Tim Hill. Yes, I get why they signed a guy like John Brebbia. I think his fastball slider makeup makes sense. Tim Hill, basically a cheaper version of Aaron Bummer. I get that. I get why they did it, but I, at the same time, I don't get why they did it. Like they fit a profile, but you don't need these players. I don't think they're going to fetch you anything at the deadline if they do great. But my, my biggest complaint, and it's been the same all off season and there are arguments against it, but you have done nothing as an organization to move this team towards contention moving forward. That's the biggest problem. You, you, your biggest trade chip is still here and might be here for opening day. And other than that, you signed a bunch of one-year deal, guys. If it, I get it's a bridge year that wasn't supposed to have to exist because of Chris Getz, but I get it's a bridge year. You still have to do something, though, to move the needle towards the future. You can't just go into this offseason doing, or into the season, after the offseason doing nothing, but putting together the scrappy players that you're going to put together and try and make this team 75 wins. Like, yes, I've seen small good things they've done and you can see organizational philosophies in these moves. But where's the direction towards the future? That remains my biggest problem. Yeah, it ties back to what we discussed a few episodes ago, basically the same topic, but now it's, you know, over a month later and we still don't have any answers. And what what makes me nervous is that it kind of reminds me of 2017, 2018 when I was like, oh, we're rebuilding, so we don't need, you know, we can have Yonder Alonso type signings and be fine. 
And it's like, sure, it's not like we needed to sign the best players ever to go win, you know, 65 games. But at the same time, then the contention years came around and you had no choice but to fill holes that had been holes for years when you could have at least done a little bit. And the argument at the time was always, oh, who's going to sign with the rebuilding team? But it's like, that happens all the time. You just got to pay up. Like, I'm not saying every player would do it, but most players, sorry, Zach Wheeler, but most players take the highest dollar value offered. So it's possible. And in terms of these signings, I mean, I, I agree with Jordan. The reliever ones, it, it's annoying that they're spending, I mean, mildly annoying that they're spending, you know, over $10 million when you have Patrick and Brebbia and Hill on middle relievers on a team that's going to lose 100 games. But at the same time, it doesn't bother me as much as during the contention years because then it was like blatant, like you already have a bunch of good relievers and you need a right fielder and you're trying to win a World Series. Now it's just like a mild annoyance to me. The one, the one that bothers me most, honestly, is Maldonado because of just like a personal, like the Tim Anderson bat flip from 2019 the, against the Royals. Like the original bat flip, that was with Maldonado at catcher. And like the Royals broadcast of that, which is like so bizarre watching it back post, like after the fact, and that they were, I mean, I understand them being upset or whatever, but they took it so far and they were acting like Anderson was like, trying to fight Maldonado and all this stuff when he wasn't even talking. He was talking to his own dugout. And even if Maldonado, like, I mean, he had like a negative reaction and, but he didn't like try to fight Tim or anything. And Tim Anderson's not even on the White Sox anymore, but it still just bothered me at the time. So I've always just had like been annoyed with him because I've seen him as like an old guard, like play the game the right way. Don't flip your bat kind of guy, which I don't like, but otherwise, I mean, he could be maybe a good influence on the pitching staff, like Edgar Caro at catcher etc what bothers me he's not really that good of a defender anymore i mean maybe he calls a good game but that's subjective so that's my main issue and to your point duke earlier you have max stassi around and you know being paraded around so he might have a major role too but either way they're just kind of to jordan's point and to wrap up mine they're just spending money but it's not a lot of money and it's not necessarily on good players either so i just don't really see the plan Right, like there's got to be someone else you can spend that money on, or it's maybe it's me trying to give, trying to compare a team to an organization that that they're not at that point yet. But it's something like the Rays, who do these little trades here and there. I, I remember, I think it was a trade with Seattle, like Jose Caballero was the name of the player. You know, the Rays are targeting guys who pull fly balls. That is a player that pulls fly balls, so they're doing something to try and move the needle. And it's those types of moves I'm looking for. Some, just something that's a little more interesting than signing a 32-year-old veteran relief. Like, do something different. Try something different. This is the time to do it. This is the time to sit and say, okay, we have a new hitting coach who came. We have a new pitching advisor who's kind of leading the organization. Do different things. That's why I like the Drohan Rule 5 pick. That's why I like the Bryce Collins just signing out of nowhere. But do more of that. This is the time when you talk about low risk, potentially high reward, and setting the tone for what an organizational philosophy is, do it. And I don't like just sitting here and complaining, and I get it, it's frustrating for fans, but I don't think it's just, you know, spend money. Because I think a lot of just fans are like, they just need to spend and they're not doing that, and I'm mad that they're not doing that. I, I, I'm mad they're not doing that, but my frustration is they're just not doing anything at all. Like, they're not trying anything, taking any risks, things like that. And that's a frustration for me. It kind of seems like we're heading towards this evaluation process of what we already have. 
And basically the guys we've signed are just, all right, well, I mean, if we need him in a pinch, that's the guy we have to be able to start on a day-to-day basis. You know, if, uh, if one of these young guys we're trying out is just, you know, over 35, we can, we can toss this guy in here. You know what I mean? Do I enjoy the way they're doing it? No, I, I think they're just kind of throwing money at a wall. They're just kind of picking random guys kind of almost out of a bag. It feels like, and I'm sure there's more thought that goes into it than that, obviously. But if you're building a roster that you kind of have in your mind might not be that great. And you're kind of just trying to bring, you know, veteran guys around younger players, at least get, at least give us a name worth kind of paying attention to. And they just haven't done that with the direction we're moving in. I would have preferred taking chances on, on guys that have the stuff, you know what I mean? That have maybe struggled elsewhere, but, you know, have, you know, good intangibles have, have like, we're highly touted as a prospect. That's like, that's why I liked the recon trades at the deadline last year of getting guys who were former top prospects. You know what I mean? They haven't panned out, but at least we're going to give them a chance to kind of show that they can possibly be something. That's the direction I wanted us to go into. All the things that were discussed and complained about on Twitter and social media last season, going out and signing former top prospects to minor league deals and just seeing if it sticks was the most ridiculous by far. What is to your point, Duke, what, what's the risk in that? There is none. Do something that at least makes me think, Hmm, that's interesting. Might be worth paying attention. I keep coming back to stupid Bryce Collins, but I'm going to be paying attention to that simply because I saw a video of how good his stuff looks. And I'm I'm curious about the fact that they did something like that. And how many signings do I have to write where I'm like, yep, this is just a depth piece. There is very little upside here, if any upside at all. Like, do something that makes us think and makes us analyze and make and gives fans a sense of, oh, I am curious about this thing. None of these moves make me curious about what they're doing. Sure, they're filling holes, and I get that. No, nothing they've done is intriguing i guess like give us a reason to watch this year we know you're trading the ace eventually what's the other reason to watch Luis robert like we, we all tried that at the end of last year and that wasn't enough i, I don't think Sox fans tuned in all year just to watch one player bat four times a game give us something that's intriguing at least until you're bringing up guys in june or july from the minors because right now there's very little intrigue for the white Sox heading into spring training and the frustrating part is any intrigue you might get from like a cease deal might not even be coming until June or July. And that's another big piece of it all. I, I would I would dare to say that like the only move that kind of like made me put my eyebrow up where it's like, all right, well, I actually like I, I kind of like that. I want to see what this guy does. It's, it's Eric Fetty. And it's because of what he did overseas with, you know, after having a pretty brutal major league career, you know what I mean? There's upside to something like that. You know, it's like, Hey, that's maybe this guy found something, but outside of that, dude, all these, all these players are who they are at this point in their career, you know? So like, I, I agree with you, Jordan, bring in guys where it's like, you know, there might be something here, you know, maybe this other team couldn't get this out of them or, you know, maybe just something mentally just wasn't clicking for him. Like, like, let me have some fun with their baseball savant page for like 10 minutes. Like, it's just stupid stuff like that, where there's there's something underlying that's interesting to you. It's like, yes, Brebbia is a good 30 year old reliever. Yep. 
Tim Hill. Yep. Ground balls. Chris Flexen. No, <laughs> sorry. Nothing. Uh, Maldonado. Not much. I mean, if you go down the line, it's like Brett Phillips. Fun guy. Where's the underlying value you're going to try and pull out of somebody, even if you don't do it? Like, I feel like, again, it's the Davey Garcia type moves that everyone was, or the Clint Frazier's, that everyone's like clowning and, oh, Rick Hahn just has the 2016 top 100 prospects list pulled up. It's like, that's far more interesting than signing veterans and just throwing together a team like that. You don't learn anything about a team's culture moving forward. You don't learn much about their players moving forward. You have one year in front of you that says very little about the direction of the team and to the future. That's insanely frustrating. Yeah. I mean, just to add, I think that if you were to say, what are the big differences so far? Obviously limited resources, but still big differences between the Getz regime and the Han regime. It's really hard to pick out things. I mean, the Aaron Bummer trade was different in that they went more for depth than Han probably would have wanted, like, you know, one bigger piece in that kind of return. But otherwise, it's like they're just making, they as in gets now, is he's just making pretty, you know, mediocre at best signings and not really improving the team all that much. And that's not very different from, from the last few years. So again, I don't mean to put too unfair of expectations. Everyone knew the White Sox were going to be cutting payroll this winter and that 2024, despite what they said, would not be a competing year. But at the same time, could you, to you guys saying give us something, I think it's not just give us something for this roster for us to watch, but also give us something to show us that you're not just the same as the last regime. Like there's no, it's really hard for me to point out real differences between them besides that they both, you know, besides the the death piece in the trade. Otherwise it's the exact same. It, it feels like if, if I'm, if I'm Gats and I'm trying to think like how he's building this, it, it really only makes sense to me that he must really think highly of a lot of the a lot of the developmental system and a lot of the AAA and AA guys if this is the way he's going to build this roster. And he must really think heading into spring training that some of these guys are going to take some drastic leaps forward or show some show some talent that really wasn't highlighted. That's the only really justifiable way I can see the way that Gets has built the roster so far. It's it's hard to get in the mind of somebody that you question how they how they op- operate and it makes you like makes you almost think you're crazy because it's like how can I actually try to rationalize this? But that's 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 really all I've got. You know, I, I've done it with GMs, White Sox, really across all Chicago sports. It, it'll drive you crazy, but that's the only way most all of this makes sense. On the flip side of that, one thing that actually does make a decent amount of sense is trying to work the value of Dylan Cease throughout the trade market. You know, from what Getz has been saying, from what Getz has said throughout the course of the offseason, he's never like fully committed to the idea that, you know, there's no chance Dylan Cease will be a pitcher on the White Sox in 2024. He's never outright said that. It's It's been strongly insinuated. He's been pretty candid about the idea of shopping him around. I don't think he's tried to hide that. Um, And it kind of seems like we're at a point right now where, you know, if this was a war, there's shots fired on this side, there's shots fired on that side, and we're kind of at a standstill right now with where we're at. And um, it kind of feels like Gets kind of has his feet in the concrete and is kind of holding firm to what he wants in this trade package. Jordan, you know, Dylan C. Sky to Dylan C. Sky. Obviously, we love the dude. We wanted him to be a White Sox for life. 
do you think that Getz is making the correct decision in how he's handling the negotiations? Do you think putting his feet in the in the in the grass per se and kind of holding firm is the right move? Or do you think it's a situation where you don't want a chance having him too late into this season, potentially maybe even killing a little bit of his value and uh, potentially not getting a, a great return at all? I'll start by saying I understand why Getz is holding firm. <clears throat> it's your first giant move as a GM. You have to set the standard of, you know, this is what I'm going to accept as a GM. This is how I'm going to negotiate as a GM. And therefore, I get not backing down at first. We just had all of these conversations about, you know, doing something that gives Sox fans something to think about or an eye towards what the timeline for the future looks like. All of that rests right now on what you get in return for Dylan C's because, you know, you're not signing him to an extension. I get there are always risks with baseball and things like that. You you have to be able to understand at a certain point, the risk is too great for whatever you think you're going to get for him at the deadline. Because what is a team now going to pay what you want for 20 fewer starts of Dylan Cease? Like desperation only goes so far. The value is still decreasing every start he makes in a White Sox uniform. I think it is a mistake for him to start opening day. I think it's a mistake for him to be on this roster opening day. Even if that means you accept a little less than what you want, you have to understand that the risks of letting two things could happen or three things could happen. He could pitch great. He could pitch terrible or he could get hurt. And those are all things you have to take into consideration when you put together a risk assessment. If two of the three, three things that can happen are bad outcomes for his value, there's no reason to keep such a high value, you don't want to settle early on in the offseason, but you're getting close to that point where you're going to have to take the best offer you got on the table. And I think here's the problem. Teams know that too. Teams know the Sox are not going to want to risk it. It could it could set the entire trajectory of Cease or excuse me, of Getz's tenure as a GM, depending on how long he waits for this to happen. And it sounds drastic and it sounds end of the worldy and it's not meant to be. But it's kind of a big deal is, is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's where it would help if Blake Snell and uh, Jordan Montgomery and those types started signing, because then that would ideally make other teams more interested in trading for someone like these if they missed out on a big free agent pitcher or if, you know, their top rival assigns that pitcher. So it's kind of not really a great market for for the players, but also for the White Sox, because it's it's, it's hurting them. And the counter argument I see to what Jordan was saying which is not one that I agree with necessarily, but I'll, I'll raise it just because we're talking about it, is they say, oh, well, Jose Quintana, same thing, 2016 to 2017, but then they got a great return at the deadline. But that was a different situation, in my opinion, both because Quintana actually, I wouldn't say the White Sox were lucky to get that return, but he didn't pitch as well with the White Sox in 17 as he did in prior years. Like it was, I was a little surprised by the quality of the return at the time. And also he had an extra year of control compared with Cease, who Cease is going to be, if they keep him until the deadline, a year and a half. So I think overall, you know, you can make the argument that other other teams, like Getz can't force other teams to give him what he wants. And I understand that Getz is doing the right thing by having high demands in this market, in a, a market that is starved for high-end starting pitching. 
but at the same time, MLB teams aren't stupid, right? Like it's not like 29 MLB teams are looking at Dylan Cease and saying, no, thanks. Like at, at a certain point, that's where I agree with Jordan. I do think that you have to just take the best offer, even if you're not happy with it. However, where I will disagree a little bit is I don't think it necessarily happen, has to be opening day. I, I could be convinced about holding Cease until the deadline, despite all the risk, but it would completely depend on stuff I would never have information I would never have access to, like the exact offers being made. Because at a certain point, yes, you need to get value for him and he's not going to have any value to you when he leaves in free agency. But if you're not even, if you're barely even getting like a top 100 prospect as a headliner, that's where I'm like, okay, like, is this even, you might as well just hope someone gives you a better offer, hope his arm doesn't fall off, et cetera. And that is a fair counter argument. I think it's one that we all consider, but can't really talk much about because we don't know what's on the table. It comes down to is Getz being the unreasonable one or are the other teams? I don't know. You know, as for as many rumors as we get, it's just, oh, they want a lot. They want a lot. Well, what's a lot? I I don't know what's a lot. I think there are teams that can afford a lot, but those are the teams who tend to be prospect huggers in the first place. So they're going to be like, oh, my God, any prospect they name is a lot to us. It's hard to tell. The thing with the cease trade or excuse me, the Quintana trade. Yes, it was awesome what the return was, but if you look at it, it played out exactly the opposite of what the White Sox and I think the fans expected it to be. Cease was considered a reliever at that point by the Cubs. That's just a poor evaluation on their part, but it makes sense why it today feels like, and a lot of fans are going to that as a result right now, it feels like an overpay today. But in those terms, I don't think it was that much of an overpay at the time. I think. Sox fans were always hyped about Cease and things like that, and I get that. But Cease was viewed as a reliever at that point. So that's why, you know, maybe the Cubs didn't think it's as lopsided as it ended up. I'm sure they'd love to have Cease right now. I don't know. It does come down to, I, I truly do agree, Nick, it does come down to who's the unreasonable party that's not moving. But if you're sitting there and it's now almost February and you're still not moving off two top 100 prospects, I think you're the unreasonable one. I think you have to be willing to move just that little bit to get to a point where everyone can agree to. Because prospects are more valuable nowadays. Teams value their prospects more. And you have to understand that as an organization, as a GM, and react accordingly. I don't know if they're doing that just yet. You know, I, I would I would understand if Getz was looking at the potential value of holding Cease to deadline and kind of really, really going all in on this and holding on to him to the deadline to get a team that is really desperate for a starting pitching arm that is like feel that a team that feels like they're one piece away. And it, it could be the Baltimore Orioles at that point as well. That's a big risk to take, you know, because Dylan's value has, you know, been kind of up and down. I mean, we all know the talent that's there, but, you know, obviously this past season wasn't his his best, especially with the season that he had just had before it. Um, and it, a lot of teams really do see value in being able to bring him in from the start to be able to kind of get him on the on the same program as what they have with their other pitchers. It's uh, I like. I like Getz kind of showing aggressiveness in the idea that he wants to stand firm. He wants to get a good deal done. 
But if this has anything to do with like him being worried about optics, about getting hosed on a deal or losing a trade, like it's just historically any GM that like kind of handles themselves that way. They usually just don't last. That being said, I really just, I really want to get this trade done. I do not want a chance Dylan Cease going out there and either getting injured or just having a rough first half of the season with little run support behind him to really just make him look worse than he obviously is. You know, he's not a bad pitcher. He's actually a damn good pitcher, but it's easy to turn optics against him in trade negotiations the second that he has a significant win-loss differential you know, and his ERA looks tough because, you know, either he was left in the game too long or he just never got run support and they left him out there in a tie game. You have to trust. This is where you have to trust your talent evaluators. Like, hey, we want four guys, but if we have to only get three, who are the three we're getting? And if we want two big guys, we can only get one. Which one big guy do we want? Like, this is where you have to get into the nitty gritty of negotiating. You can't just sit there and be like, nope, not moving. Nope, not moving. And again, it's, it's placing a lot of blame on Getz where we, to Nick's point, we don't know for sure. But if you're assuming the enough reports where it's like they're asking for so much and so much of this and so much of that, after a while, you hear enough of these reports, you tend to think they're probably true. Like not everybody's making everything up. We might look back if he decides to keep him into the season six months from now and be like, yeah, we were idiots back in January. He was absolutely right to keep him. I'm not sure I'm there yet in feeling that way. And I don't know how I'd be convinced other than hearing what other teams are offering and being like, yeah, I'm glad you did. Well, and it's it's so difficult to maneuver what's actually being offered. You know, it's so easy for somebody, you know, as as the three of us that work for a website that covers baseball, it's really easy for somebody with very limited information to jump and write an article about these are the players that are the White Sox are interested or these are the players that the Mariners, for example, are kind of putting in front of Chris Getz to make this trade happen. Um, this is starting to kind of feel like the Chris Getz episode, honestly. I don't know if we totally planned it that way, but this has been uh, a spotlight on, uh, on on the man called Getzy by a, a former teammate that we actually have in an interview coming up uh, coming up here soon. Obviously, the Kansas City connection gets discussed a lot. The easiest like layup of a joke you can possibly make on Sox Twitter is every time we either sign a player or sign somebody into the organization, there is that immediate Google search. Like Google has to go nuts of insert name here, Kansas City Royals, because they just want to check and see if they have ever even sniffed the Kansas City Royals organization. And, you know, it, it's a it's a situation where it, it hasn't gone too far. You know, Jin Wong as assistant GM to replace Jeremy Haber. Obviously, that question is immediately going to jump in again. Chris Getz jumping with some word salad here. And, uh, you know, he wants to say diversity of thinking is extremely important, but there is built in trust with people you've worked with before. There's kind of truth to that. (laughs) If I'm looking at the flip side here and going away from the Kansas City Royals meme at this point or the White or the, the Chicago Royals, the Kansas City White Sox, however you want to refer to us at this point. How do you feel about this, like, as far as somebody bringing in guys that he's worked with before? Yeah, I mean, just starting it from the first aspect of, like, feeling comfortable with someone versus preferring diversity of thought or however Chris Getz put it. I mean, it makes sense, right? Like, I mean, I I would like to think that if I were in Chris Getz's position, I would 
solely hire people who are going to challenge me and who are going to bring in new, fresh ideas that I've never considered. But at the same time, I think that in practice, having a mix makes sense. Where the question starts to come in and where I start to question things is when that mix gets so extreme. Like you don't just have Jin Wong, the new assistant GM. You also have Gene Watson, the new player development guy. And then Pedro Grafal and the majority of his staff came from the Royals. And again, it's like, you know, I get it. You want to stick with what you know. But that's where I think that like the meme and the joke, as much as it's a tired joke and one that is made too often to Duke's point of like typing in a player's name with Royals afterward to see if they have a connection. It's still like they kind of earned it. Like you, you kind of have to eat that until you start, you know, poaching from somewhere else and and i know that if you look deep enough you can find like hey there's this other organization that a lot of these players happen to play from or happen to play in in the past but i think the issue here is that these players who are being brought in going away from the front office now and going to the players these players who were brought in are being brought in because insert coach or front office person here was also with the royals at the time and you know is familiar with that player like something about him from their time together and that's what bothers me. Like even some of the minor league signings that we're talking about, there some of them we didn't talk about because they were so insignificant. But it was still like, oh yeah, of course he was on the Royals in 2021, and this guy in 2023. Like, I, I think Jordan's probably going to disagree. I know it's definitely annoying, but I think they kind of earned it, and they don't deserve benefit of the doubt, is my view. Here's my thing, though. Like when, when last year or two years ago, whenever there was that Rule Five draft pick Nick Avila from the Giants. And everyone was like, oh, Ethan Katz worked with him. It makes sense. This is a good idea. Every everybody does this. Like, it, I'm not trying to deny the fact that there are plenty of connections. I completely agree with what Getz is saying. I just don't think it's an issue at all. It's it's what you expected when you hired somebody from an organization that they're going to have, especially when they've worked in an organization for most of their career. They're going to have plenty of connections in that organization that they're going to want to bring over. When we first hired, or when the White Sox first hired Griffal, everyone's conversation was, oh, who are his friends? Who's he going to, does he have any friends? Because if you remember right away, they had Montoyo on staff, Katz was staying on staff, and everyone's like, does anyone want to work with Griffal? And that was the whole stupid thing everybody was discussing that week. And then they start bringing guys over and nobody's happy because they're from the Royals. It's like, well, what else did you expect? Like, you can't you can't play it both ways. And there's something to be said about and I think it's Nick Moore to your point. There's something to be said about getting talent from other organizations. I think they've done that. Barfield's a great one. Paul Janish is a really interesting idea. I think if I'm going to give Kretz gets really good credit for anything this offseason, it's going to be thinking outside the box with Janish because that's. I don't think anyone was expecting that for director of player development. There's enough here that you went outside, you tried some other things, but you also stayed with names you're familiar with. I, everybody in that position is going to do that. You need people who are going to challenge you, absolutely. But familiarity doesn't mean total agreement either. I think we're going to need to see more from Getz and who he trusts as key decision makers and, you know, who might present a challenge to him, even if he knows them well. The the players, it's like, yeah, this one guy spent 15 games in the Royals organization in 2015. I don't care. Like, that. that's just digging to dig. That's when, Nick, to your point, it goes way too far. So, like, yeah, they've earned it. 
But I feel like any other team would have done very similar things. I think you can probably look and see other guys doing very similar things. I mean, like, like here, here's a good example. Bannister no, played with the Royals, yes. No connection there coaching. But he worked with Cats, and everyone's like, oh, well, they work together, so this, seem, this seems pretty cool. This guy seems like a good dude. But there's still a connection to Cats there. But we're okay with it because that's the Giants, not the Royals. I don't know. It's a very long-winded way of saying I get it. But what else did you expect when you hired a manager that worked in the Royals organization for many, many years and your GM's first job in baseball was with the Royals for quite a few seasons? What did you think was going to happen? Yeah, so not to speak for you, Jordan, but it sounds like what you're saying is the anger shouldn't be directed after every individual move. But it should be, why did you hire these guys in the first place, right? Is that kind of your point? Yeah, it's like, look at the, if the credentials are there, like, I just, Jin Wong, I don't care that he's just going to be doing contract negotiations and stuff for Jeremy. I don't care. He's probably fine with it. He's been in the organization for, I just don't care. It's, if it was more significant, and this is going to be overgeneralization, and it's going to come back to bite me somewhere along the line. If it were more significant positions of power, like if they had just picked the pitching coach from the Royals and the hitting coach from the Royals and the director of player development from the Royals, it's like, oh, now we have a problem. Now you haven't even tried anything else. But a player personnel guy, an assistant GM, like that doesn't bother me as much. Like the whole, again, if you're just going to be a crappy team this year and you like certain guys who you feel are good clubhouse guys, like, how else are you going to decide someone's a good clubhouse guy unless you've either worked with them or you know someone who you trust has worked with them? Like, that seems to be the only thing that they care about this year, clubhouse and defense. One of those two things you can only gauge by players you've played with. It's not that I don't care because I'd like you to poach from other organizations, but it, I don't care because it's also hard to poach from other organizations at the same time. Guys, who are, it starts with the fact that you named your head of baseball operations as your general manager. You, you, you deflated the amount of people you can get in powerful position, positions as well from other organizations. That's just how it goes. Yeah, I mean, I, I, understand, I understand both sides of this, honestly. Like, I understand the idea of being annoyed that, like, we're getting, we're getting people from an organization that really hasn't had a ton of success outside of that one freak world series run you know what i mean like i understand that argument 100 percent. and like do i love like i almost cringe every time we make one of these moves because you know my immediate first thought is like i swear to god if this if they have any sort of kansas city connection it's going to be all anybody's going to want to talk about so flip side of that i do really understand the idea of keeping people around you that you're comfortable with you know obviously and honestly i've found that you know, my true friends, even just in regular everyday jag off life, are the people who can actually call me on my shit. And, you know, maybe that's maybe that's why Gets brought some of these guys in. It's not going to just be a total agreement type thing. You know, maybe those are the types of people that he works best with. Um, if it, you know, we're going to know within like the next year or two if he's just surrounded himself with yes men or not, or if these are actually legitimate baseball people that he actually is that he respects. And these are people that are going to have a constant dialogue throughout the room and there's not going to be any hurt feelings about it. You know, and I don't think it's that crazy because like we see it across sports, you know, whether it's 
the off the front office, whether it's coaching, whether it's players, it, it's no different in baseball. You know, it's uh it's a manager getting hired from a team he was with, you know, for 10 plus years. And then, you know, for whatever reason, the ax drops and he goes to another team, probably going to have like two or three players on that roster that he had on that team. You know what I mean? It's, it's just kind of one of those things. And it's early on in the process. You know, if, if Getz is in a situation three, four years from now where he's still the White Sox GM for better or for worse, and it just is continuing to be nothing but, you know, guys he's worked with in the past and he hasn't been able to like bring the ax on anybody, then maybe we have a discussion with something like that then. But I think it's, I think it's genuinely from my perspective, I think it's too early to tell. And as Jordan said, I don't think it's, it, it's not like it's just doesn't happen. It's very normal and it's annoying because the Royals aren't very good and they haven't been very good. You know, you, you wish he had connections with the freaking, you know, the Rays or the Red Sox even, you know what I mean? Like, would we be having these conversations if we hired a manager who had been in the, I don't know, the Orioles organization for 15 years? I don't think so. Like it, it just happens to be, if they did the exact same thing, except it was the Orioles or insert good team name here instead, or the Cardinals, I think is another good example. I don't think we'd be complaining. I, I Or not we, I don't think we're complaining. I think it's more so we as a fan base would be complaining. I think they'd be like, oh yeah, bring in your guys. We like this organization. We like these guys. You can be a smart person in a bad organization. And I'm hoping there are some in here. But also, there are none that are so significant, other than the manager and some of the, the staff members up there. None of the additional hires, I guess, have caused me to be like, uh, oh, we're trying to be the Royals of player development or something like that. That's where I would have had more problem with it. But also, I would have had a problem with it, but I also would have expected it, kind of. Because it's like, yeah, you're going to go with people you trust and are familiar with. And it's going to usually be people you've worked with. You nailed it with the point of like, you know, if these if these guys came from somewhere else, genuinely, because like if we say we hire Terry Francona, when he gets fired from Boston and we would we would literally love everybody he poached from the Red Sox. Like even if it was a freaking even if it was a bullpen catcher that his main like trademark is adding a Y to at the end of everybody's name, like we would love it because he came from the Red Sox. You know what I mean? So like being able to have a little bit of nuance and actually being able to see what these people can do, you know, behind the scenes and being able to see what they can do for different, different aspects of the role. I think that's, it's something that needs to be monitored obviously because of how many Kansas city guys are being brought in. But it, it, yeah, I, I just, I'm not, I'm not ready to jump into Lake Michigan over Chris, or uh, Chris gets keeping guys around him that he's familiar with. Um, I guess, I guess, uh, I guess we're kind of nearing the end here, but um, I do feel like we should bring this up uh, considering how much, how much press Jason Benetti got on his exit and with, uh, you know, being in Detroit now and even taking subtle shots at us, any chance he can really get in the nice Jason Benetti way. Um, We have a new, new, we finally have a new play-by-play. It is John Schifrin. He has worked with ESPN. He has, uh, he's, he has a pretty, pretty, I wouldn't say decorated history, but even in his shorter term in the industry as a play-by-play, 
um, has somebody is somebody who's been pretty well respected across the industry. Not necessarily a name that a lot of people were expecting. Um, I, I guess just initial thoughts on it. You know, I mean, it's a play by play guy, so like I'm not not gonna go nuts about it. But first thoughts, Jordan. <laughs> Someone said he looked like Nick Madrigal a little bit, and I kind of shuddered at the thought of that because whoever said it was absolutely right. I have no idea how tall he is, but I can say that he's taller than Nick. It's Madrigal. just the face. That's all. It's just, and I saw it, and now I can't unsee it. Every time I pull it up, I'm like, oh goodness, I can't unsee that. Um, I like I said, I I like giving someone new a chance. I don't mind it. He's said good things so far, and I think he has enough experience to where I'm not too worried about. You know, this time is his first time as a play-by-play announcer for a team. It is what it is. Give someone new a chance. I, I do kind of feel bad for Connor McKnight, who was right in the running with that. Um, hope he gets his opportunity, whether it's with the Sox or someone else, sometime soon. It took him longer to make this decision than it did to make their GM decision, though. So that's always a fun one. But happy to have Schriffen and excited to hear some of his calls and how he uh, replaces or rather tops Sox math because he's he's got a tough road ahead of him just from that standpoint. Yeah, yeah, he he seems like a cool guy. Um, like like you said, and and two things really. One is kind of to Jordan's last comment. Actually, I hope, and I don't mean you, but I hope people give him a fair shake. In that Benetti, so many people love Benetti so much and deservedly so. But you know, John Schriffen has done nothing wrong. He has nothing to do with that. So I hope people give him a real a real chance. And you know, I watched some of his his reel, and he he definitely I like how animated he gets during calls. So I hope he brings that to the White Sox and. My second point is that he kind of needs to, right? Because this team, even if they're like surprisingly good this year, and by good, I mean relative to expectation, not like playoff team, their brand of baseball is still one that I feel like, at least for me, I don't want to speak for everyone, but like the it's whole, boring. Yeah, exactly. Like the defense and fundamentals <laughs> brand. I know that's like very like South side, like grinder or whatever, but it's not really it doesn't work as well anymore for actually winning games <laughs> and we all know that the grindiest 70 win team you'll ever see on this side of the mississippi let me tell you good lord exactly <laughs> yep and 70 might be too nice so i mean he has his work cut out for him but I'm, I'm rooting for him and i hope he does well that is a good point too like legitimately coming in like with benetti the team was on the up and up you know they were just starting out the rebuild but they had the ideas in place and he did a really good job, you know, highlighting guys on the farm. And I think NBC in general did a good job with that. They're going to have to do that more so this time with a lot more energy because now fans aren't just buying into the idea of a rebuild because now you haven't done anything to earn their trust this time around. On top of the fact that this team is even less enjoyable at the major league level than it was at that time. There's a lot that they have to figure out. And unfortunately, Schriffen and Stone have a lot on their plates now. And they're, I'll, I'll be curious to see how creative they get with it. I think if you're looking for a fun storyline, yeah, that's probably the one of the year, to your point. So genuinely, with Steve Stone, I'm not worried about him at all. You know, whether you love him or you hate him and, you know, whether you have a little bit in between. He's watched a lot of bad baseball in, throughout his career. You know, he was on... He was on the north side of town when they were kind of on a brutal stretch as well. Like, kind of knows how to keep it entertaining, even if it's just like that one coy comment. Um, I always, I always look back to Tony Larusa and Dusty Baker arguing and hearing his commentary uh, when when Tony was with the uh, with the Cardinals, and it is it's hysterical. 
it is and it's like a very minor thing like yes they're arguing outside of the dugout but like steve added to it just by keeping it entertaining and it was a situation where yeah the cubs were all right but they weren't necessarily great and uh i i don't think he's gonna have a problem with that and i also want to bring up the point the big elephant in the room which bothers me a lot because i remember when it was announced that jason benetti was going to be our play-by-play guy and he was going to kind of ease into that role from hawk harrelson I love Jason Benetti. I like Jason Benetti from the beginning. A lot of people didn't. And a lot of people don't like to admit that they did not like Jason Benetti from the start. Yes, they grew to love him because they realized as he covered more games, very knowledgeable, knows the game, knows how to keep it entertaining, knows how to knows how to keep it entertaining when we're getting blown out. But like you have to give John a chance here. He's a guy who has a pretty decorated history in college football specifically. That's where I know him from. He's a very good college football announcer. He's also covered some major league baseball. He's also covered some KBO. Haven't, haven't really caught much if any of that, but as a college college football guy and somebody who has kind of integrated him into covering multiple sports, kind of similar to a Jason Benetti, who is a very good college football commentator, a very good college basketball commentator. I mean, he could do NFL football games at some point if he ended up wanting to. He's that good. You really got to give him a chance. Like, you know, is is he someone that was groomed the way that Benetti was, you know, through the minor leagues up to being this, you know, being the, the White Sox fan in the booth who just happens to be a great play-by-play guy? No, he's not. He's not that homegrown type talent. But he's still very knowledgeable. He's very good. His calls are awesome, honestly. Like when he gets excited, he's not, he doesn't overdo it where you can sense the optimism and like the juice in his voice. It almost, it's like you can almost feel like when he gets that adrenaline rush seeing a great play. I think people are really going to enjoy him. They have to give him a chance. He's not Jason Benetti. Jason Benetti wasn't Hawk Harrelson. And you want to know what? People who gave him a chance, they did not live to regret it. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, that's all we have this week for the Sox on 35th podcast. The Gets on 35th Podcast, if I can fix that. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the website, SoxOn35th.com, as well as following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at SoxOn35th, to stay up to date with your Chicago White Sox. This has been Duke Coughlin, joined by Jordan Lazowski and Nick Gower. We'll be back next week as we cover another week of Chris Getz baseball. Thank you, and go Sox. Go Sox. Go Sox. Go Sox.